Well, good morning. <laughs> it is so wonderful to see everyone gathered here today. It is wonderful to see us gathered on this Lord's Day to worship and honor God as our King and our Lord, and uh, also to remember some of the things in this life that matter absolutely the most. Uh, one of the things that I love about this time of year is we often set time aside to remember the most important and impactful events that have ever taken place uh, in the history of this world. And one of those is uh, what is commonly called the Incarnation, or it's the amazing moment that happened over 2,000 years ago when God, the creator of all that there is, became flesh, became one of us, and lived a life, set an example, but also through his life, transformed the world. Through his life, he defeated and conquered the forces of darkness in this world. Through his death, he gave us forgiveness. And through his resurrection, he gave us hope and victory. And so as we gather together to remember Jesus, and as we gather together to remember that wonderful story that has impacted so many lives, um, we ask that we do so in such a way that is uh, encouraging to one another, that uh, honors and uplifts God. One of the things that I'm particularly excited about is, you know those uh, songs, like we sometimes call them Christmas songs, we don't sing them too often, uh, but some of the songs that we'll sing this morning are some of my absolute favorite, and I swear they are the most, um, they are some of the most theologically rich and deep songs that we have in all of our songbooks and all of our and all the singing that we do. And so, as we sing this morning, let's make sure that we uh, sing out. Let's make sure that we focus our hearts and our minds on the words that we'll be singing. Uh, the way we're going to do service this morning is a little bit different. Uh, we'll have some songs and then some short devotional thoughts about some aspect of the incarnation, and then we'll have some more songs, and we'll kind of intersperse throughout. And as we do so, the singing will really help with the message that follows. And so, again, please try to think about the songs, worship from the heart, sing out as loud as you can, and, uh, and I think that this will be a wonderful morning. The name of Jesus is truly wonderful. One of the unique things about the Gospel of John, however, is that John's introduction to Jesus doesn't include his name, at least at the first. At the very beginning, it is a word, word, in the Greek word logos. It's this idea, it's this concept in the very mind of God. And that this word that is eternal is also active and powerful and divine. This word is the creator of all that there is, and this word is the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created. That there is nothing that came into being apart from this word of God. And we learn about this word. We're then introduced to John the Baptist, and we find out that he is not this word, but he's one of those who testified about this word. We find out that this word is also the light. We also find out that this word is the life. We, we find out that life and light and the very presence of God are found in this word. And after giving this grand description of the beauty of this word, how it is transcendent and unparalleled and great and above all that there is, we're told in verse 14 that that word became flesh. That's not to say that word then visited flesh. And that's not to say that that word uh, put on like a flesh human suit for a little while. That word actually became flesh. The word became one of us, became human. That concept of the divine eternal 
Word of God becoming human is something that throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, people are going to struggle with, and throughout the rest of world history, people are going to struggle with. Uh, imagine being the neighbor of, uh, of you know, Mary and Joseph. What would it take you to convince you uh, that their child is not just the child who you saw grow up and you saw, you know, through every awkward stage of his life. You saw him before he could walk. You saw him before he was uh, uh, capable of doing anything on his own. You saw him go through those teenage years. It's like you see that person and you're being told to believe that that individual is actually the embodiment and the, the, the presence in the most real and literal way possible of the creator God of the cosmos on earth that's not an easy thing to believe. That's not an easy thing to accept. I've heard people describe this moment before from God's perspective, trying to talk about what would that take for God, who is great and pure and holy and good and powerful, to actually become a human. And the, the illustration I heard was that imagine you look down and you see like a cockroach or something, something that's disgusting, something that is small and beneath you, and that you end up taking on that body. And there's some, there are some things about that illustration that I think might be helpful if you're trying to, to kind of just think, well, God is this much above us, and how much are we above a cockroach? Well, God's even farther above us. So you can understand that. But I will say this, and as you read through the Bible, I think this uh, becomes uh, evident. God does not view us the way that we view a cockroach. Uh, God views us with absolute love rather than disgust. God views us as being people who are worth saving. As, as odd as that sounds, because when we look around us, it's so easy to see our faults, and, and we know that God is aware of them. But God loves you enough to die for you. And God took on human flesh so that he could do that very thing, so that he could be with us in the most real and present way possible. The language of that second phrase where it says, he dwelt among us, that word dwelt is a unique word. It's not the common word to dwell or remain in an area in Greek. It's actually a word that's only used a couple of times, and it's always used in, in temple or tabernacle language. Uh, it's, it's the word tabernacle as a verb. It's the word that says he tabernacled among us. And if you pick up on uh, the tabernacle and temple theology in the Bible, you realize that that deals first and foremost with the idea of the very presence of God. The presence of God was with his people in the Garden of Eden in a very real and literal way. Uh, he walked through the garden and they heard him. Uh, but then after sin entered the world, you have this idea of the absence of God that permeates the pages. Uh, but you see these, these constant moments of God reuniting and, and connecting and being present with his people again, whether it's the burning bush or whether it's the tabernacle or whether later it's the temple. In the book of Ezekiel, there's this tragic scene of the very presence and glory of God rising up above the temple because of the sins of the people and slowly, bit by bit, leaving, whether it first goes up from the temple to hover above it, then it goes to the courtyard, then it goes to the gate, then it goes to the mountains beyond the city, and you see that God's presence is leaving as the Babylonian armies are coming in to destroy the temple of God. And one of the things that Israel hoped and longed for was the day of God's return to be among his people. 
And when John 1 begins by telling us that the Word became flesh, he enters into this temple theology that will pop up throughout John, where you'll see competition and comparison between Jesus and the temple. You'll see Jesus go to the temple, and he'll say, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. And people are perplexed, thinking, what could he possibly mean? It took 46 years to build this temple. You know, how could that possibly happen? But we are told that he was speaking about the temple of his body, because God doesn't need a brick and mortar building to dwell in to be with his people. Through Jesus, God dwells with us in the most literal, personal, and intense way possible. Jesus became us. Jesus became flesh. And so as we begin uh, to contemplate what this means for us, let's remember that it is an act of absolute love on God's part. You don't need to go to a brick and mortar building to find grace and forgiveness and worship anymore. Now you come to Jesus and you find all of those things. And let's uh, continue singing and we will uh, get a little bit further into this study as the morning goes on. When the Word did become flesh, God affirmed the goodness of creation and the value of a body. That body is significant that Jesus had. That body gives Jesus connection with us that otherwise it'd be impossible for us to fully uh, understand or comprehend. That body allowed Jesus to experience weakness as we do, temptation as we do, even death as we all will. And yet that body also was the vehicle in which he overcame every one of those things. He overcame the temptations of this earth and he overcame death through the power of the resurrection. And in that way, he lives on and his body lives on. His body lives on at the right hand of the Father and his body also lives on through us who are called to be his body here on earth. And Jesus wants us not just to know the facts about his body and not just to know that he came one time long ago, but to remember as a regular part of our life together and as a regular part of our life in his body, he wants us to remember his body. You know, he could have asked us to remember it by uh, singing a song about his body or by uh, reading particular scriptures about his body, which are all fine things to do. But what he actually asked us to do was to gather together and to have a small meal that remembers his body, that we share in food together as we think about the actual body of Christ in the fact that he died for us, that he might redeem us and forgive us. And so if you have your uh, Lord's Supper with you, uh, let's say a prayer as we think about this body, as we participate in this body together, and as we partake of this body with one another. Our Holy Father, thank you, God. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the life that he lived. Thank you for uh, his body and enfleshment. Thank you for his death and resurrection and the hope that we all have and share in because of that. Thank you for his body that unites us together as we partake of this Lord's Supper. And Father, we pray that you are honored and glorified in all that is done. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
When Jesus did institute the Lord's Supper with his disciples, it sometimes is called the Eucharist, uh, and I think appropriately so, because the Eucharist is the Greek word that means thanksgiving, and that word is used to describe the prayers that Jesus offers every time he institutes the Lord's Supper. And it's important for us to remember that this is a meal of thanksgiving, thanksgiving for his body and thanksgiving for his blood. That blood that Jesus shared for us and shed for us is symbolic and powerful and real in many ways. And one of the things that's so incredible about it is the meal that Jesus did institute the Lord's Supper during was during the Passover. And the Passover meal was one where people already took bread and they already took uh, the, the fruit of the vine, yet they associated it with different symbols and events in their history. They associated it with the escape out of Egypt. Uh, they associated it with uh, the blood of the covenant that was shed at the base of Mount Sinai that entered into their agreement with God. Uh, it remembered their past. It hoped for their future. And yet, as Jesus takes it, this blood that already has all of those symbols behind it, he then reinterprets for us when he says that this is my blood which is poured out for you, or this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And he reminds us of our covenant with God. He reminds us of the deal that we have, that God will be our savior, that God will be our deliverer. God will free us from the bondage of the slavery of sin and lead us into eternal life. That the Exodus story is not over, but is renewed again in Jesus. And this blood is the foundation of our salvation, that this blood is the hope of our future, and that this blood is the, the uh, pact that we have with God in that relationship and in that covenant. And so let's have a word of prayer as we partake of the uh, fruit of the vine. We thank you, God, for Jesus, and we thank you for his blood that was shed for us, his blood that forgives and cleanses, his blood that unites us together with one another, and his blood that unites us with you. You have used his blood to clean this world. You've used his blood to clean every one of us, and we thank you for that. And as we enjoy this meal now, and as we uh, take, uh, as we now drink in memory and in honor and in worship and in praise of you, and for all that you've done for us through your son, we pray that you are honored by it, Father. We love you. Thank you for this blood. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God has given us many gifts. We just talked about the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, and I don't know if you can find any greater gift that's ever been given than that. Uh, at Christmas time, we spend time thinking about gifts, gifts we might give to other people, gifts we might receive. Um, but there's no way you will ever in a million years be able to outgive God, who has given us all that we have. Everything that we have is owned by God, and yet he has given it to us and shared with us. And the most important of all are the gifts of salvation and the hope that transcends this life that we have in Jesus. And so as we consider gifts uh, that we give, let's think about the gift that we offer and give back to God. Let's think about ways that we can uh, help uh, serve the world around us, that we can help uh, further efforts to teach others about this wonderful, great, and saving God. And uh, let's give with cheerful, thankful hearts, recognizing that God has given so much for us. Um, you can give online. Uh, we'll have, we have opportunities to, to give in the back, but uh, as you consider giving, we'll do that uh, after service is over. But uh, let's have a word of prayer before we uh, continue on with song and, uh, and reflection. 
Our dear God, we love you, and we thank you for the many gifts that you've given to us. We thank you most of all for Jesus, and we thank you for his sacrifice for every one of us. We thank you that you've demonstrated generosity and love. And God, we pray that love, sacrifice, and generosity all mingle together in our hearts as we consider our gift, as we consider how to uh, support and to help the work that you are doing in this world and the work of this church. And Father, we pray that we give joyfully and generously. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The glory of Jesus is something to behold. The glory of the highest God, the glory of the Creator. In fact, as you read John chapter 1 and verse 14, we read the phrase that says, and his word became flesh and dwelt among us. The passage then goes on to say, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Now we talked about that word dwell being temple or tabernacle language. Well, that word glory is also. The glory of God was seen at the tabernacle and the glory of God was seen at the temple. There was this profound and incredible awe-inspiring smoke and fire that demonstrated the very presence and glory of God there at the tabernacle and at the temple. And yet, as the Gospel of John begins, he wants to remind us that that glory of God that you have seen before at the temple is now seen in the walking, talking, living, breathing temple, which is Jesus. Jesus is the very presence of God and the dwelling of God on earth. And so you don't need a physical temple when you have Jesus. And so that's pro right at the introduction of John. We're supposed to be reading him as this new temple and one that demonstrates the glory of God. Now the glory of God is going to be seen in a number of different ways. But as John 1 continues, one of the things that you're supposed to see when you see the glory of God in Jesus is you're supposed to see who God is. If you look at verse 18... The passage says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained or exegeted him. Uh, the idea is that you haven't seen God. And so how do you know anything about him? How do you know what God looks like? Well, you look at Jesus. By looking at Jesus, you see the glory of God in him, and he explains to us who God is. So for the rest of the Gospel of John, you're supposed to be looking to Jesus to get your definition of God. You forget what you thought you knew about God and look at Jesus and learn who your God is. And so as you do this, you come to find out the glory of Jesus and the glory of God is seen through Jesus in many ways. Uh, in, in his first sign that he does in Cana of Galilee, he turns water into wine. And we're told, this is John chapter 2 in verse uh, 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. The glory is seen through some of the signs that Jesus does, uh, whether those are signs of turning water into wine at a wedding feast or the signs of healings, the signs of, of raising Lazarus to life again. When you see that God is life-giving, that God loves and cares for even those who are uh, going through the, the worst of times and the afflicted, when God is the Savior of the party, you're learning things about who God is. When you see Jesus in John chapter 13 get on his hands and knees and wash the feet of his disciples, which includes every one of those who abandoned him, which includes the one who denied him, which includes the one who betrayed him, you're learning about the God of endless love. You're learning about who God is. As uncomfortable as, as, as it is to say, 
we worship a God who washes feet. And Jesus showed us that. God who washes the feet even of sinners. And Jesus showed us that. It's an incredible thought that God not only came to be flesh, but he came to be a servant. He came to give his best. In fact, he came to give his all. John concludes by showing that we have a God who dies for us, a God who would suffer for us, a God who would go through uh, what I can't even begin to imagine for a people who historically uh, have not been overly good to him, and uh, that's actually continued in that. Why? Why would God do that? It's because of the inexplicable, awe-inspiring love of God. He loves us. God is love. And that love can't always conjure up a great explanation or definition. But it's something that I think every one of us should know. When you behold the glory of God and you see who he is in all of his perfection, what you'll see is a God who loved you enough to create you, a God who loved you enough to become one with you, and a God who loved you enough to die for you, that he might forgive you and also give you victory over death itself. The glory of God is seen in Jesus. He is the greatest definition of God that there is. So let's reflect more on Christ, reflect more on Jesus, and see who the God that we serve is. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we saw or beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And then there's this final phrase that concludes the verse, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. You know, sometimes um, when people talk about what they are looking for at a church or when people talk about, uh, you know, different ways of, of honoring and serving God, some people want to, to hev- heavily emphasize truth. Some people want to heavily emphasize grace, and, and sometimes it's done in a way that almost makes you feel like there's a, a dichotomy or between those two, or there's some sort of uh, 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 distinction between them, as though truth are some of the hard-nosed people who care about doing what the Bible says, and grace, those are the people who are full of love, but they don't really, you know, maybe not quite as strict about what the Bible says, or whatever. And I want to suggest that's a completely false way of thinking about the relationship of grace and truth. In fact, grace and truth meet together. Grace and truth are one, and they're found in Jesus himself. Jesus is where grace and truth meet. Uh, If you look at verse 17 of John 1, the passage says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized, or grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's a fascinating verse because you shouldn't read that to think, oh, so there was no grace or no truth under Moses. Well, there was. Like grace and truth, those were, those were also ideas that were given under Moses. In fact, the law itself was a gift of grace, and the law certainly taught truth. So there was knowledge of grace and truth and law and all of that under Moses. But grace and truth came to be fully realized with Jesus himself and in the person of Jesus. I think this is a way of, of demonstrating the incredible nature of the incarnation, that the grace and the truth of God have merged together into not a concept that you read about, 
but a person who lives and who is real and who loves and who dies for you. It's like Jesus is where you go to find grace, and Jesus is the embodiment of truth. In fact, throughout the Gospel of John, you'll see this grace and truth come together time and time again. You'll see it in the healings of Jesus. You'll see it in his death on the cross. Jesus will actually call himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a passage that can certainly combines ideas of grace, of us going to the Father, but also of truth. Jesus is the way to the Father. Grace and truth are found in Jesus. Grace and truth, you can't have grace without truth, and you can't have truth without grace. And that's one of the, because gr grace is truth. It's like, if when you understand God in truth, you'll see grace. And when you, when, you, when you see the grace of God, it will lead you and compel you to truth. Like the, you can't separate the two, and that's primarily because the two, grace and truth, are most fully realized in a person, and that person is Jesus. And that person uh, is who came to make salvation possible for every one of us. And so as we conclude our service, it is wonderful to think about what Jesus has done for us, the incarnation, the life that he lived, the teachings that he taught, the death that he died, and his victory over death through the resurrection. But it's also important for us to look into our own lives and see what that story has meant to us and has done for us. And if there's anyone here who sees yourself as outside of Christ or wants to take advantage of the glorious gift of Christ, we love you and we want you to do that. Uh, if there's anyone here who would like to name Christ as Lord of your life, if there's anyone here who would like to have your sins washed away in baptism this morning, we can do that. You can talk to one of our elders who uh, will be in one of those rooms in the back, or you can come sit on the front row. But if you have the need, please let it be known uh, while we stand and as we sing. Brother Joel Davenport is about to lead us in our closing prayer. Before he does so, I just wanted to thank every one of you for your attendance and uh, wish every one of you a very Merry Christmas. Uh, I hope that God's richest blessings come upon you during this season and throughout your lives. Thank you.